Good morning, everybody. Thank you, Justin, for that bombastic welcome. This is gonna be a good day because Jesus is here. And wherever Jesus shows up, good things happen. My name's John, I'm one of the pastors here. Um, for those of you like myself from a Jewish background or maybe you're just enjoying the Feast of the Lord, happy Sukkot, Hag Sameach, the festival of booths is here where we choose to be borderline homeless for a week because we remember our peoples who were homeless for a long time in the wilderness. What? Yeah, I know, welcome to being a Hebrew. Um, we are in the midst of this series called Silent Killers. Everybody say, Silent Killers. It sounds ominous, a little bit spooky, but don't worry. It ends well. We're, we're, you maybe you've heard this term in regards to healthcare. We're talking about things like cholesterol or hypertension or, or diabetes, these things that seem small and insignificant until they are deadly, but, but we're more than just bodies. We're more than just skin and bones. As humans, we're holistic. We're mind, body, soul, and spirit. And in this series, we're talking about the silent killers of the spirit, the silent killers of the soul. Last week, we dialogued on bitterness and unforgiveness. How many of you have ever been hurt before by somebody? Okay, we talked about how if you, some of you didn't raise your hands, which maybe you don't have any friends, so we can fix that. Come talk to me after. But if you have friends, you've been hurt by friends because people are broken and we hurt one another, even when we don't intend to. And so we talked about how in the midst of hurt and pain, if we do not deal with that hurt and we allow it to grow roots, very dangerous things can happen in our soul. We talked about how bitterness is a root of bondage, but healing brings, forgiveness brings healing freedom. If you missed it, if you, if you feel like that would be helpful to you, you can check it out on our podcast or on our YouTube channel, search Greenhouse South Florida, and you will find it there. Very practical, and I hope that's helpful for you for your life. This week, I wanna talk about a silent killer that affects, infects, and attacks our very identity. So with that mystique and intrigue, can you stand to your feet with me as we get ready to read and honor God's word in the room right there online? I talked about the Dolphins last week, and then we had that game. I'm like, the whole time, I'm like, why did I talk about them letting us down? No, so painful. So now we got a backup quarterback, so we'll see how that goes. Thankfully, Jesus is on the throne, amen? Genesis chapter two, we begin it in verse 25. Are you ready? All 17 of y'all, the rest of y'all, are you ready? Amen, all right, I'm a talk back preacher, so you can yell and scream at me, I'll just assume you're happy. Genesis two, very beginning of our story, this is Adam and Eve. Verse 25, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Like, I'm glad I came to church today, amen. Now the serpent was more crafty, now remember the serpent is who? The devil, right? If Jesus is an incarnation of God, this is a, a, an interesting incarnation of the devil. You're like, I knew snakes were wicked. All right, well, sure, if that's where you wanna go with it. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say? Dad jokes. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, well, we could eat from the fruit trees. Isn't it interesting? Did God really say that? Well, kind of, but not really, but kind of. He's never stopped doing that, by the way. Did God really say you can't eat from that tree? Well, 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 I mean, kind of. We can eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but God said you can't eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And in fact, he said you can't touch it, otherwise you're gonna die. Well, you won't die, the serpent said. He's so sneaky. I mean, you're not, I mean, you're not, you're not, uh, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna be real with you. I mean, God, like, you know, he's got an agenda up there, but I'm gonna keep it real. You won't really die, kind of true, but not. He said, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes are gonna be opened and you'll be like God. You're gonna know good and evil. Well, they already knew good. What was he offering in the value proposition? It's always what he does, right? Threefold agenda, steal, kill, destroy. He says, you're gonna know good and evil. And the woman saw the fruit of the tree. She saw that it was good for food. It was pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom. So she took some and she ate it. And then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it as well. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. Then the woman and the man heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from God. Isn't that crazy? Like God's not good at hide and seek. <laughs> they hid from God. But the Lord said, where are you? 
Isn't it funny when God asks questions he knows the answer to? You ever done that if you're a parent with your kids? What's that all about? It's about relationship. Where are you? Adam answers first, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so, so I hid. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Check this out. And the man said, well, that woman that you put here with me. Some of you are like, oh, it's been happening for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. That woman that you put here with me, she, she, she ate it. And then she gave me the truth and I ate it. And God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? She said, well, the serpent that you put here. Isn't it funny how professional we are at passing the buck? Well, the serpent, the, I don't know how he got here. He's kind of weird. He's talking to me. I don't even really know, you know, serpents talk. But I mean, he, he gave it to me and, and I ate. And it all went downhill from there until, but we'll get into that later. Jesus, you're amazing. But there is an enemy of our souls and, and his lies are very effective. And I'm praying that you would speak to our hearts in this moment, in this space, right here at Western High School and wherever people are watching from online, and you would set right the lies of the accuser of our souls. And you would speak to our hearts and you would remind us of who we are and who you are, and you would set us free. In Jesus' name, amen. That's good. Turn to your neighbor and say, it's about to get good. It's about to get good. You can say it by faith. You can say it in faith. This morning, I want to talk on the silent killer of shame. The silent killer of shame. Anyone in here ever done something truly embarrassing? A little cathartic group therapy session right here. Um, if you have not garnered at this point in your journey with Greenhouse, I like sports. Um, if you have not gathered that, I like sports. I like to talk about sports. I like to play sports. If you didn't know that, it's probably your first week and you'll learn real quick. Um, but I, I enjoy in particular what I feel is God's favorite sport and heaven's greatest gift to humanity. Uh, come on, y'all. You know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about American football. I'm talking about football. I enjoy football. I enjoy uh, watching football, playing football. And I, re I was reminded this week uh, growing up, and maybe at one point in life I told this story. I can't remember anymore. I've been preaching a long time here. But I remember I had made the flag football travel team right here in South Florida, and, and I was all excited. I was probably 13, 14 years old, and I made the travel team, and I remember one game in particular. Uh, I played running back, and I played quarterback, and so they gave me an opportunity to play quarterback in this game, and it was, we were playing actually in Weston, so right here in South Florida. It was our rival team, and I remember in the game, I, I, I dropped back to pass, and think no one was open, and I took off scrambling, and I made it through, and I was gone. I mean, no one in front of me, end zone in sight, and I'm running. I'm like, yeah, and, I'm, and I felt so good. And then I heard this sound <gasps> behind me, and it was not a bear. It was a, it was a human who was desperately chasing me with all of his might, <gasps> and he's coming behind me, and I take the little glance back, and I see him, and so I'm running, and he's running, and we're going, and it's flag football, and in a last-ditch desperate attempt to pull my flag, he lunges. And in his flight and in his fall, he grabs not my flag, but my pants and my boxers, and he falls. Now, there's something else you need to know about your pastor. I'm a little bit competitive. And so in the moment, I was presented with a decision. I can stop and pull up my pants and risk my flag getting pulled and not scoring the touchdown, or I can continue on the journey because I got a vision for success. Ah. And so I ran streaking literally and metaphorically into that end zone, and I tossed the ball to the ref who wanted nothing to do with anything, and I turned around. He's like, I think this might be illegal somehow. And I pulled up my pants, and it was glorious. And that was the zenith of my sports career right there. But we've all been there, right? I mean, not, not like there, there, like, not like streaking in football, but like we've all, we've all done something, we've all said something, we've all had some sort of an action that in retrospect, or maybe even in the moment, we're just like, what was I thinking? Sort of that like face palm, epic fail kind of deal, right? You guys are relating to this one? But, but what about when the embarrassment, what about when the moment, what about when the action, what about when it goes much deeper? deeper than that. 
What about when it gets to be more than just the thing that I said or did, but we begin to internalize it as who we are? I need us to catch this and we can't miss it. At the very beginning of the human story with God, at the very beginning of our experience with God, at the introduction of sin in our world, our first response to the brokenness of sin is shame. And we've been hiding in shame ever since. Shame is all over the Bible was with Pastor Mike, my, one of my mentors, my pastor in Gainesville, and we were in Guyana, shout out to the Guyana crew, and we were doing sermon prep in Guyana, and we were working on this and praying through this months ago, and, and, and over and over and over, shame just keeps popping up in the scriptures. It is central to the redemptive plan of God, and it is central to our brokenness as humanity. And shame, it has this predictable path. We see it right here with Adam and Eve. Shame gets us uh, to cover up and then we run and hide, and then we blame each other, but it didn't stop with them. See, the reason this message matters so much and the reason that I'm praying we have ears to hear from Jesus this morning is because we live in the midst of a culture that is steeped in shame. And our shame culture is killing us. Fueled by a lot of what we see on social media, we live in this culture of shame. And I want to give a caveat here because if you're like, well, well, we, well we have to, what do we do when people do wrong? This is not an excuse for, for letting people off the hook. We must hold people responsible for their actions. Amen? That's important. Someone does something, you, that, that needs to be addressed. But what shame does is it goes well beyond holding people responsible for their actions. And shame actually attempts to convince someone of their newly convicted identity. The shame culture that we are immersed in right now goes well beyond holding people accountable for their actions. It, it, it trends us in the direction where people themselves are done. People themselves are beyond repentance, beyond repair, beyond redemption. It is literally an anti-gospel movement. I've got one big idea and one core thought. I encourage you to jot this down if you're taking notes, piece of paper or on your smartphone. Then we're gonna dive into this. Here's my premise. We will not live in victory. The victory Jesus promised for us, the victory that Jesus purchased for us with his own blood. We will not walk and live in victory without slaying the ancient giant of shame. Learning to confront, learning to address shame, it is one of the essentials to walking in victory in Jesus. And in order to defeat it, we have to understand how it works. Are you ready for this? Three of y'all. Are the rest of y'all ready for this? Yes. All right, here we go. Point number one, let's start at the beginning so we can be on the same page. What is shame? Turn to your neighbor and ask him. Say, what is shame? What is shame? What is shame? Shame is defined as the powerful emotion we feel when we go against the social norms and guidelines that we often have established for ourselves. What shame does is it, it brings about this all-encompassing way that we see and view ourselves and conceptualize our very identity. Now, now, shame is different from its cousin, guilt. And this is important. Here's why. What guilt does is guilt looks at the action. And what guilt says is, man, that thing that I did, that was bad. When I was rooting for the Florida State Seminoles, man, that was a bad decision. I, I should have repent of that. When I was rooting for the Miami Hurricanes, I'm not gonna mess with the Miami Hurricanes, I love y'all. When, when, when I did that thing, when I said that thing, when I did that action, when I made that decision, that thing was bad. That's guilt. Shame turns around and looks in and says, I am bad. Now this is important because guilt can actually be used by God and is used by God in redemptive ways. Guilt has a focal point that is not on the individual alone. Guilt actually causes us to consider the impacts and the emotions of others. Paul said it like this in 2 Corinthians 7. He says, godly sorrow or godly guilt, it brings repentance that leads to salvation and it leaves no regret. You're like, how do I know if I'm dealing with godly stuff or if I'm dealing with shame? Here's a great indicator right here in the Bible. It brings repentance, it leads to salvation, and it leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow, well, that brings death. Guilt can be 
redemptive because it causes us to forsake wrong actions and do different and do better. Shame, on the other hand, is inherently self-focused and self-destructive. Now, I want to unpack this a little bit because we often think about and hear about shame from the perspective of the victim. Right, when we think of shame, we're typically thinking shame is something that we suffer under. Shame is something that we experience. Shame is something that we, uh, we are forced to endure. But the reality is that, and I wanna pause there, if you have come in this morning stuck or trapped in shame, I have so much excitement in my heart because I know Jesus wants to set some people free and I'll get into that more as we get into this. Like if you have been trapped in shame, good news. This morning, there is freedom available to you in Jesus. Amen? But the reality is that shame is not simply something that we suffer under as a victim. Shame also becomes something that we then shift around and become a perpetrator. See, shame is actually the flip of the coin of pride. Let me explain what I mean. If someone is prideful, when you get prideful, when we are in a state of pride, what does that mean? It means that the only person you are thinking about is yourself. And just like that, in a different way, but the same way, when you are wallowing in shame, the only person you are thinking about is yourself. It leaves no capacity for others. It leaves no opportunity for God and others and God's glory and people's flourishing. With pride, it's yourself in a hyper-positive, and with shame, it's yourself in a hyper-negative, but either way is inappropriately and inordinately self-focused, and we do not thrive when we focus on ourselves. Do you see shame in this light? It's like, it's not just, it's not just the hostage, it is also what we join in to make other people hostage. See, shame is like an atom bomb in our soul. It comes in and what begins as internal destruction inevitably bleeds out to destroying anyone and everyone around us. Like Pastor John, that's intense. All right, let's talk about it more. Number one, what is shame? Number two, what does shame make us do? What does shame make us do? Anyone in here ever accidentally stolen something before? No? Y'all looking at me so judgy right now. You've never gone into a store, you went into CVS, and you were distracted, and you went, okay, oh, oh, now the humanity of people. Okay, I, I man, I, I get in the zone. I, I'm not the best multitasker. Anybody with me on that one? Like, I'm not the best. And so, like, it, I wish I could say once or twice or thrice, but on a handful of times, I have found myself, I'm in CVS or Walgreens, that's where it always happens, because I'm just, and I'm thinking about something, or I'm, I'm texting someone, or I'm going through something, and I have walked out of the store before and been like, okay, I've, I've walked out, I've been at the doorstep, I've gotten in my car, I've started to drive away and been like, oh, oh my goodness, <laughs> I don't think I paid. I don't think I paid. No one's ever done that. Y'all make me feel so sh- shamed right now. Goodness gracious. Anyways, I've done it before. And, and then you have this like existential crisis because you're like, man, I used to not follow Jesus and I didn't care, but now I, I'm not, I wasn't trying, I didn't mean to steal, right? I'm like, man, now what do you do? You, so like, I've, so I, well, this is what I do, I go back in there, but how do you go back in there after you had stole, but by accident, but now you want to pay on purpose? Like, how do you do this? So you like, so I like awkwardly like bring stuff back in and I try to like sneak, sneak back. I'm like, hey, uh, hey sir, uh, I, I'm, I love God and I stole this, but it wasn't on purpose and now I want to pay for it. And what do you, y'all are looking at me so, no, it's all right, amen. It happens to me. And it's always this awkward feeling because I'm like, man, I, I feel so ashamed. I'm like, man, I'm a, I never, I don't lead with like, I'm a pastor here. I'm like, <laughs> but hey, I kind of stole by accident and I want to pay for this right now because I was just distracted. Shame makes us do crazy things. Shame has this way of not just being self-destructive, but, but being self-defeating. And we won't live in victory until we slay the ancient giant shame. Amen. And in order to defeat it, we need to understand how it works. So let's look at Adam and Eve. Genesis 3, we'll jump into verse 6. The woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom. She took it and ate it. She gave some to her husband and he also ate it. Then they realized their eyes were open. They realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They heard God walking in the cool of the day. 
and they hid. God says, where are you? And they say, we heard you walking. We were afraid because we were naked. So we hid. First stopping point, if you are trying to identify shame in your life and you will see the ancient path in action, shame makes us cover up and hide. If you're wondering if shame is at work, if you're wondering what's happening, shame makes us cover up and hide. Shame brings about fear. Adam and Eve, I mean, think about this. Adam and Eve had afternoon strolls with God. That sounds cool to anybody else. Like, hey, what do, what do you got on the calendar? Oh, I'm thinking we're gonna go and we'll probably like name, we'll name some animals. I saw this crazy thing with this bill. I think we're gonna call it plat- platypus, platypi. I think we're gonna do that. We got some animal namings today at three, Adam. And then don't forget at 4.45, we got our afternoon stroll with God. Like, man. And then, and, and then they, they go against God's one rule. God help us. We would have done the same thing because we do it. And all of a sudden, the afternoon stroll with God becomes this baffling game of hide and seek with the creator of the cosmos. Like think about how crazy, how illogical this is. They are literally hiding from God. It's like when Liam's in the curtains and he's laughing, he's like, (laughs) and his feet are sticking out. (laughs) I'm like, oh, son, bless your heart. You are not hiding very well. Like they're trying to hide from God. How illogical is that? How irrational is that? That's what shame does. It brings about fear, fear to be seen as our true selves. And so we hide from people and ultimately we hide from God. Brene Brown, a popular author, professor at the University of Houston who writes on shame says this, shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and unworthy of belonging. That something we've experienced, done, or failed to do now makes us unworthy of connection. Tim Keller says the greatest human desire is to be fully known and fully loved. To be loved but not known, he says, is comforting, but superficial. Now to be known and not loved is actually our greatest fear, but to be fully known and fully loved, well, that's what God does. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness and it fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw our way. Shame, you can bank on it. Shame makes us cover up and hide. But shame does not stop there. Let's continue in the story. God calls to them and says, where are you? And Adam says, I heard you were in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And and he asked him, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she she gave me some fruit of the tree and and I ate it. And the Lord said to the woman, well, what did you do? And she said, well, the, the serpent deceived me and and I ate. Number one, shame gets us to cover up and hide. Number two, shame gets us to blame others. Shame gets us to blame others. See, what shame does is it keeps us from being honest about our struggles, from being honest about our failings, from being honest about our brokenness that by the way, we've all got. And instead, it redirects that emotion to where we heap that same thing that we know we cannot handle. We heap that shame on other people when they fail us. Again, shame goes well beyond calling out mistakes. Shame cuts deep. It it goes to the very heart of the person. And if we're not careful, shame will hint or state even explicitly that it's not about the mistake that they made. It's about the mistake that they are. Or the mistake that we made or the mistake that we are. What shame attempts to do is to define ourselves, to define others by our worst mistakes rather than by our best moments. Shame attempts to take the worst moment that you had with your spouse, the worst moment that you had with your kids, the worst moment that you had with your job, the worst moment that you had in your life and cement it in ink, permanent. It is written, that is who you are. R.C. Sproul, popular pastor and author who since went to be with Jesus, he tells a story about getting invited to preach at a church in the UK. He was there and 
And he said, at one church, I, I struck up a conversation with a woman after service who was just effusive about the grace and the mercy and the love of God. And she's sharing from the heart. He said, it was so beautiful. I mean, she was just going and, and those involuntary tears, misty eyed kind of welled up in her eyes as she began to talk about God's grace and his goodness and his forgiveness. And he gets done with that conversation, so encouraged. He said, and then one of the, one of the people from the church comes up to me and they said, what were you doing talking to that lady? I don't know, I was talking to that lady. He said the man went on to tell him that, that that woman 30 years prior had been a collaborator with the Nazis. She had betrayed her country. She had betrayed her neighbors. She had betrayed her people and she had collaborated with this force of evil. And he said, and listen, we don't, we don't interact with her. And R.C. Sproul went on to find out that for the last 30 years, this woman had lived in forced isolation and seclusion. She had been ostracized from everybody, including the church. And R.C. Sproul ends his interaction, ends in his, this story in his book. He says, is there no room for forgiveness? Now, here's what's crazy. You're probably listening to that story, and you're like, how could, man, how could they do that? That's so wrong. I mean, the Nazis are horrible. Pastor John, you're Jewish. If they would have had their mission accomplished, you wouldn't be here. And I kind of like you. And that was straight from hell. And that was so bad. But, man, 30 years, you got to forgive, right? We see the ridiculousness of shame when it's out there in someone else, else's purview. And we feel that it's wrong, so why do we do it? Because it's effective. I need us to be a little honest and circumspect in this space because when other people use shame to accomplish their agendas, we, we see it clearly for what it is. Man, that's, that's wicked. How could you hold someone in contempt when we are guilty before God and you get all spiritual about it, right? But when we're doing it to someone else or when we're allowing the devil and the enemy of our souls to do it to ourselves, it just makes so much sense. See, the issue with shame and the reason it is a silent killer that is potent in its capabilities is because shame is effective. You can get results using shame in the short run. Parents, you can shame your kids into compliance. You can. The problem is you won't get their hearts. If you're a manager, if you're a boss, you can shame your employees into working hard, into going the extra mile, but you are never garnering true loyalty. You're never really collaborating. You're not getting relational synergy and you're ultimately not creating team. The problem is that when we, if we, if we stumble into using shame, we are no longer using the gifts and the grace of God. We have now begun using effective tools from hell's toolbox and they'll get results but not God's results. God never uses shame. Hebrews 12, it says we should look unto Jesus, the author, the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, what does it say? And he despised the shame. He despised the shame. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Psalm 34 says, David says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all of my fears. Lord, do that this morning. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are what? Never covered with shame. Jesus came because we needed freedom. Jesus came, scripture says it's for freedom that Jesus came to set us free. Jesus came to set us free from sin, to set us free from shame. Shame destroys us, it imprisons us, and yet so often we are tempted and we engage in doing the same thing to others. I mean, think about that. Jesus sets us free from shame. And then we turn around and we lock other people in the same prison that we just escaped out of. It's crazy. Why? Because shame is like an atom bomb in our soul. I'm saying this because I'm not trying to make you go on some guilt trip. I'm saying this because I need you to grasp the full extent of what is at stake here. You're like, man, well, I, I know I wrestle with this. I know I battle with this. I know I'm ha I've had a hard time, but, but it's fine. It's not really affecting anybody else. It is, it is. I'm telling you, it is. Shame is like an atom bomb in our soul. And if we leave it there, like those seed analogy from last week, it is like a ticking time bomb that will inevitably go off and the collateral damage is indiscriminate. Shame is an indiscriminate killer. And if it blows up on the inside, it's only a matter of time before it blows everybody up around us as well. You say, John, is that really that serious? It really is. Look at Daniel 12. Speaking of the afterlife, speaking of eternity, 
It says, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth, they're gonna awake. And then he gives two outcomes. Some will go to everlasting life. Y'all know what that is, right? Heaven. Others to everlasting shame and contempt. This is how big of a deal shame is to God. It is a literal descriptor of hell. You're like, what's hell like? And we all get these crazy, it's like fire forever. And you're gonna be, it's like red ants all over your body. It's like, you're gonna, it's like you're gonna be sitting there crazy. It's like if you put your finger in an electric socket for the rest of your life and the smell is so bad. Here's what the Bible says. You wanna know what hell is like? S-H-A-M-E, shame that never ends. The great news is, guess what Jesus came to do? Conquer hell and the grave. Amen. Yes, this is good. Shame is this literal descriptor of hell, which is why the end game of shame makes a lot of sense. The end game of shame is separation from God. Shame gets us to cover up and hide. Shame gets us to blame others. And finally, shame gets us to run from God. Verse eight, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from God among the trees of the garden. It gets us to run from God. Our daughter, Lucia, she's super cute and amazing, and we love her. And she is two a little older than two years old right now, um, still being potty trained. She says she wants to be potty trained, but she is not. She's lying. She, someday she'll get there. She's like, I want to use the bathroom, and then she just doesn't. Anyways, parenting struggles. But she's still in diapers right now, and so I have no idea where this came from. But one day I walk, I walk into the room, and Lucy looks at me, and she runs into a little corner. Like, what is she doing? And I'm like, man, this is so, I'm like, Lucy, come here. She says, no, what are you doing, girl? And this girl's, pre- I've talked about, she's precious. She's so sweet. She's so amazing. She's off in the corner. Hi, I'm like, what is she doing? And I walk over there. I'm like, I had a, I had a guess, all right? This is our second go around. So I had a guess what she was doing. But I walk over there and I'm like, bless them. That is not the aroma of Christ. My daughter is exuding right now, right? I walked over there and I'm like, Lucy, what happened? And she goes, I go poo-poo. <laughs> I'm like, girl, come on. And, and, and I went and I'm like, the, I'm like the poo-poo diaper king in our household. I'm like, I'm, give me all the poopy diapers. Like that's my, I'm not very good at other household chores, but man, I could change a poopy diaper. So I'm like, Lucy, come on. I was like, let me change your diaper. She said, okay. And so we go and change your diaper. And, and I'm like, well, that's so weird because I never taught her to do that. Like, I never taught Lucy, like, hey, when you have a poopy, I, I, we, we never, like, we don't, like, yell at our kids for pooping in the last household, in case you're wondering. Like, that's not a thing we do. We never were like, oh, Lucy, why'd you do that? You're so gross. That's so, we didn't do any of that. Why did Lucia all of a sudden inexplicably decide that when she was dirty, she had to run and hide? Ooh, I hope you hear that preaching. Because it's something broken within us already from the jump. Now, here's the self-defeating nature of shame because it's not simply self-destructive. It's actually self-defeating. Here's Lucy who is in touch with her own. She's not wrong. She is in touch with her own mess. She is in touch with her own brokenness. She is in touch with her need to be clean. But now she ends up running from the very one who could help make her clean. Obviously, I'm gonna address it as her dad because I love her which is why he's trying to address it as your dad, because he loves you. Adam and Eve make a mistake and they fail and they're not wrong, they blew it big time. So what do they do? They run from God, like a toddler with a dirty diaper. If we are not careful, shame will get us to run from God instead of running to God, who is the only one who can make us clean. How do I know if it's shame? Which direction do you run? We were in pre-service prayer and and my mom was like, you know what's funny? Humans are gonna hide either way. We're gonna hide either way. We're either gonna hide from God or we're gonna hide in God. He who abides in the shelter of the Almighty, he's gonna hide us in his wings. You can tell, how do I know if if this is just me, if this is shame, if this is the enemy, or if this is God, which direction do you run? Do you run to him? Then it's godly sorrow. It's gonna bring repentance. It's gonna bring salvation. You're gonna care for God better. You're gonna become a better person. All of the prayers you've been asking, God, I wanna change. I want you to make me different. He's answering all of it. Are you running from God? I can, it is not 
guilt or godly sorrow, it is shame. It's self-destructive and it's self-defeating. Shame gets us to cover up and hide. Shame gets us to blame others. Shame gets us to run from God and you never grow and you never get better and you never become who God created or intended you to be. Juxtapose, juxtapose that with maturity. Maturity is a, an ability to separate your identity from the failures and the things that you do. It's an ability to say, okay, this is who I am, accepted, beloved. A lot of the things that Lorena and the worship team led us in. This is who I am, but this is what I did, and what I did is bad. Otherwise, you only have one gear. You either have to embrace everything, your mistakes and all the bad stuff that you know you probably shouldn't be embracing, but you're like, I don't know how to do this, or you run from everything. The reality is we embrace identity and we reject Mistakes. God, teach me to do differently next time. Failure can be one of the greatest teachers, but you cannot learn from failure if you embrace that you are a failure. It has to be out here. It can't be in here. It's not in here. That's a lie. Here's an application. Pastor John, what do I do with this? And I just want to carve out some space and we're just going to pray together gonna give us an opportunity for prayer, to receive prayer, to receive from God. The next time you are triggered into shame, I'd encourage you to jot this down. I want you to do these three things in this order. The next time you are triggered into shame, number one, bring it to God. Bring it to him. Release the pain. Release the hurt to him in prayer. Go to his word, filter through it. Allow his word to be the, 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 the standing point, the bastion, the foundation for your emotions to define your reality. Bring it to God. Number two, talk to yourself like you talk to someone you love. Here's what's crazy about shame. Oftentimes we end up having conversations with ourselves, and we talk to ourselves in ways we would never talk to anybody else. If it's a friend that you love, you'd be like, girl, come here. Let me tell you what God says about you. You are chosen, you're forsaken. You start singing, they're like, oh, I don't wanna hear you sing, but amen, that's good, that's a good word, right? We, we had all this vision, all this grace, all this mercy, all this love for other people. And then, and then we fail, and what do we start saying to ourselves? You are so stupid. You're just always gonna be like, Start talking to yourself like you would talk to your friend that you love that you would start encouraging, right? Because the same truth for them is the same truth for you. Number one, bring it to God. Number two, talk to yourself like someone you love. Love your neighbor, Jesus said, as you love yourself. Finally, number three, reach out to someone you trust and tell them the story. Reach out to someone you trust and tell them the story. This could be a counselor, a pastor, a leader, a microchurch leader, a mentor, a parent, a best friend. This is someone you have a track record with, someone you have relationship with, someone that has enough of, a, of an entry point in your life that you've given permission to say, hey, when I'm missing it, I want you to call me out. And when I need to be encouraged, I want you to let me know. Someone that has actual access to your real thoughts and your real heart. Like, Pastor John, I don't have anyone like that. We've got a great place for you to find people like that. They're called microchurches, and you need friends like that in your life if you're gonna make it. Invite them in. Your pain is safe with Jesus, and your pain is safe with them. I'm gonna land it here. Worship team, you can come up, and we'll get ready to close in song in just a moment. Scripture says it's for freedom that he set us free. So how do we find freedom from shame, if we're not gonna walk in the, in the life, in the victory, in the abundant life without slaying the ancient giant of shame, you're like, Pastor John, I, I don't think our track record is very good with that because Adam and Eve had the first issue with it and we've been struggling with this battle, with this silent killer, with shame ever since. I came across this story and it was perfect because it's about Jesus and the gospel and football. Don't you like how the Lord speaks to us and our unique personalities? I came across this story this week, and I had heard it before, but I got really curious this week in particular, and then it, and then it hit in a different way. This is, uh, there's a picture up on the screen. This is DeAndre Hopkins and his mother. DeAndre Hopkins there is one of the premier receivers in the NFL. He used to play for the Texans. Now he plays for the Cardinals. And, um, and I've kind of seen every now and then, if you remember the Texans, he always goes and like gives his touchdown balls to this woman. This woman is his mother. And I was reading this op-ed piece in ESPN, and, and basically what happened is his mom um, 
you know, self, self-admitted. It was like, listen, I, you know, I was not the best mom and I put my kids in really horrible situations that they should not have been in. And so one day um, she was in this abusive relationship and as she was trying to get out, there was an uh, ex-girlfriend in the picture and she threw a pan of acid into her face and blinded her. She was going through this story and, and she's like, you know, after it happened, my, my son was sort of a, a pretty eighth grade. Everyone was already like, oh my goodness, this kid's gonna be amazing. And so there in South Carolina where they grew up, you know, she would go to all the games and then she got splashed with acid and she was, you know, kind of fighting for her life for a while. And then she finally got to a point where she was healthy enough to go. And she said, but I, I, I couldn't drag, I couldn't bring myself to go to the games. I went outside. I remember the first time I went outside and, and, and I, I had a sense of what I looked like. I mean, her face almost melted off. It was all these reconstructive surgeries. It was crazy. And she said, I had a sense of what I looked like, but I went outside and I heard a few people talking and, I, and, and my mind connected all the dots and I knew I looked like a monster. And for years, her family members, DeAndre Hopkins, his siblings would say, mom, you gotta come to the games. He wants you there. She said, I, I, I just can't go. I can't go. And, and, and they, they begged and begged and begged. And finally, she got up the courage and the nerve to go out in public because she could not overcome the shame of her physical appearance. She said, so finally I went and my kids huddled around me in the stands and they would give me the play-by-play in my ear because I could not see my son play any longer, but I could imagine. She said, instead of conjuring up a mental picture of myself as a monster, I began to envision the purpose, the person that my son saw when he turned to look at the sideline after making another amazing play. A mother who deserved his unconditional love. This is what she says. I was able to cope with being blind. I was able to cope with the scars, with the ridicule. And I think it gave me the courage to eventually find myself. I was finally able to look at myself through his eyes. And it made all the difference. The article went on, to this day, if her son scores, her daughter will help her stand up and lean over the barrier so she can accept the football from her son Hopkins. This ritual serves as a reminder that while she can't see her son, he still sees her and he wants the world to see her too. This is how she ends the article. I haven't always been the role model mother. I know that. And yet he still respects me enough to let everybody see him give me that ball. She says, I don't don't think anybody else understands just what that means. That ball symbolizes so much more than people could ever imagine. It means that I am seen. It means that I am known. It means that I am loved still just for who I am. And I'm reading this article as dust comes into my conference room and I start. Because I'm like, that's, that's the gospel. What happened in that story? The gospel, what changed about DeAndre Hopkins' mom and her appearance? Nothing, but what changed is that she made a decision to say, I'm not gonna think about myself in terms of how I think about myself. I'm gonna think about myself in terms of how he thinks about me and how he thinks about me makes all the difference. And if you're here and you've been stuck and you've been battling in shame, friends, I need to let you know the most liberating reality in the planet is here right now. Everything we sung this morning about God is true. You are complete in him. You are fully seen and you are fully known and you are fully loved and you are fully forgiven and you are fully accepted. Well, if God only knew, he does. He does. And you are who he says you are and you can do what he says you can do. And I am praying this morning that we would have the grace and the courage to believe it to receive it, to acknowledge his truth as the truth we will found our life on. And if you're here this morning and you're like, man, Pastor John, that would be great. That that would be amazing. I, I just can't, there's great news for you. There's a story in the Bible of, of a man in that same spot and, and Jesus said, hey, if you're willing, I could, I could heal your child. And, and the man said, Lord, I, I believe, but, but help my unbelief. And if you are not able to get to the point where you trust and take God at his word, or maybe you've got a little uh, sliver of that faith, you ask him, say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Let's pray together.
Jesus, right now in this moment and in this space, we invite you, Holy Spirit, would you come and work? Lord, some of us have been held captive by this silent killer of shame for far too long. And Lord, I'm praying that by the grace and the power of Jesus and the good news of the gospel, you would bring freedom this morning, freedom in the room, freedom online. Lord, some of us as a result of shame have begun to experience not just the internal devastation, but it has begun to devastate relationships all around us. We wonder why people get around us and feel so insecure, Lord. Would you rescue us from shame so that you can rescue our relationships and the people around us as well? I just wanna take a moment and give you a chance to respond. If you're here in the room and, and you sense something stirring in your heart, it's the love of God, it's the hope of the gospel. There's a God who really loves you and cares and wants to set you free. If you need to find forgiveness and freedom and a new identity in Jesus, all it takes is a heart that says, I'm, I'm in. If you're here and you'd like to turn to Jesus for forgiveness and freedom and healing and right standing with God, that is only made available through him. I just want you to shoot your hand up in the air right now. If you're in the room, if you're online, say, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I need you. Even right now, you can begin to pray in the, in the quiet and the privacy of your own seat, of your own heart. Say, Jesus, rescue me. I'm so stuck, I'm so trapped. I don't know how to get out of this rut. I've tried, I've tried self-help, I've tried other help, I've tried different therapy sessions, I've tried all these different things, but I've never tried you. Jesus, rescue me. If you're here and you say, John, I believe this, I really do, and, and I'm a follower of Jesus, but I can't get out of this rut. It's a perfect moment to pray that prayer. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Why don't we stand to our feet? If I can get our prayer partners up here at the front. If you need to respond this morning, there's something powerful that happens when we pray prayers of agreement, a relationship with Jesus. It is deeply personal, but it is not meant to be private. It's, it's a family you're invited into. If God's doing something in your heart, we're gonna sing these songs that I pray we sing out together as a cry of our heart. But as soon as we begin to sing, if you need prayer, if you'd like someone to agree with you in prayer, to speak words of life over you, to speak Bible truths over you, if you have not yet begun a journey with Jesus and you raised your hand for forgiveness and healing and freedom, as soon as we sing, you're welcome to come forward and then I'll close us out in just a moment. You guys lead us. Me faith to trust what you say that you're good and your love is great. I'm broken inside, I give you my Trust what you say, that you're good and your love is great. I'm broken inside, I give you my life. Cause you're not looking for perfection, you're just looking for a heart that says I'm ready. turns to you to him church Your spirit's strong in me. My 
I'm going to dismiss us in just a moment. Two things before, before we go and before I do that. Um, we have a, a whole group that prays before service at 10 a.m. Any of you who want to join are welcome to do so in the cafeteria right there in the teacher lounge. But as we were praying, and this was not in my notes, but I think it is the Lord, I, the thought popped into my heads of, of a game my kids like to play. They call it ghosts, but they put a blanket over their heads and they like run around without being able to see and like bounce into stuff and bounce into each other. And inevitably it leads in crying because they bounce into stuff and then hurt themselves. We're like, we hate this game, but the kids have so much fun and they love it. And I got the picture in my head of a, of a bunch of adults playing that game. It seems so ridiculous, right? But the blanket that was covering our heads was not a, a blanket from earth, it was shame. And so we were, we were stumbling around without being able to see and, and there was, it, was, it was fun at points kind of, but then inevitably we were bumping into stuff and hurting ourselves and cutting ourselves and bruising ourselves and wounding ourselves and wondering, why am I so bad at walking? And God was like, you're not, you got a sheet on your head, take it off, take it off. My encouragement is if you're here this morning and, and, and shame has just become so familiar that it just feels almost impossible. There was one more word that, that was shared. One of, the, one of the staff came up to me and they said, hey, I feel like God highlighted 2 Corinthians 4. It's a story about one of the prophets of God and this widow, the Shulamite woman. And, and God had already moved powerfully in her life, but, but her son was sick and the illness was terminal and she basically had decided, well, there's nothing anyone could do, so I'm just gonna wait and we're gonna, we're gonna prepare and get ready for the burial. And she said, I feel like God is saying that, that he doesn't want our people to prepare for burial. Instead, we're supposed to prepare our hearts for resurrection. And I think the resurrection is specifically in this moment. I'd encourage you before you go, here's the irony of shame. Shame defeats us and it also gets us to a point where we won't ever share it because we feel so shameful about it and so we never get victory and so we decide that we can't ever get victory. You see the vicious cycle it goes in? If this morning resonated with you, before you leave, if you're online, you can even request prayer in the chat, give God a shot and watch what he can do. Church, I pray the Lord would bless you and keep you that he would make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you, that he would lift up his countenance upon you, give you his shalom, shalom, perfect peace in Jesus' name. God bless you, church. Walk in victory in the love of God. Love you, church.